This is a Federal News Network podcast. The nation's supply chain relies on vehicles that burn diesel fuel. Now the Energy Department's Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, in conjunction with Washington State University, has reached a milestone in an effort to convert substances known as bio-crude into diesel. Here with what's going on, the co-director of the Joint Bioproducts Institute and a scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, Dr. John Holliday. Dr. Holliday, good to have you on. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Give us a sense of the demand that the nation will still have for diesel fuel in the first place, because all you hear about nowadays is electric cars. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing to to talk about. Electric cars are incredibly important. Uh, We use about 140 billion gallons of gasoline a year, and being able to replace that with electric vehicles is hugely important. But cars only deal with this light-duty fleet. Uh, We move goods around. We have a lot of heavy trucking, things like that. And and the U.S. uses about 60 billion gallons of diesel fuel a year right now, and that's expected to grow, whereas gasoline is expected to decrease. Now, the program you're overseeing and working with Washington State University is converting one thing into diesel fuel. Tell us what it is you're starting with. What's the raw material here? Yeah, you know, for us, the raw material that we are really focusing on are waste products that are causing different environmental challenges. And so the particular raw materials in this case are food waste, manures, wastewater sludges out of wastewater treatment plants, and things like that. Because in the past, the projects that we've heard about have to do with cast-off food oil and fryolator residues and so forth turned in. But this is things that don't seem like they start out as oil in the first place. Yeah, they certainly don't. Uh, They might have some oil in them. You'd be surprised how much uh, lipid content is in uh, sludges or manures, but they're not these pure oils. And oftentimes, a lot of the biodiesel people hear about are actually vegetable oils directly. Got it. So you're talking about Garbage, basically, is the impolite word for it. Uh, garbage would be a nice impolite word. Uh, <laughs> right, okay. We're, we're yeah. It's family radio, so we'll, we'll stick with that. And you did reach a milestone, I guess, if I understand it correctly, in the process side of turning these materials, bio-crudes, into diesel fuel. Tell us what specifically happened recently. So... The process to take these kind of waste materials, these uh, you refer to as garbage, uh, into diesel fuel is two steps. And the first step, we heat these materials with heat and water, and that forms this bio crude oil. Now, the bio crude oil has a lot of cats and dogs, nasty stuff in them, and we have to be able to remove those. These are nitrogen compounds. These are things that can harm engines and things like that. And so it's in the refining of this bio crude oil, which is similar to refining of crude oil, that we've hit this milestone on. Historically, refining of complex oils causes a lot of damage to a catalyst. And the catalyst is the material that helps take the hydrogen to remove these unwanted compounds out of this biocrude. And being able to, to show that we could do that for long periods of time, several thousand hours, has been really important. That is to say the same capabilities that an ordinary refinery has because they operate essentially all the time. That's right. This has to be able to operate for a long periods of time over the period a single catalyst will have to operate for a period of a year or more. And we have to be able to demonstrate that these catalysts can be robust enough as they work with these oils. And what do we know about the economics of the resulting diesel fuel? Does it take more energy to put into this process than you get out of the resulting diesel, or is it actually efficient? Yeah, so this is really important. Two things. One, it is really efficient. 
both on the carbon side, the carbon that's in these products, we need to be able to get that out into the oil very efficiently. And the energy that we use has to be really efficient. And so it is. It is efficient. In addition, it's taking feedstock that's causing these environmental problems that uh, we have to actually put energy into to, to help with those problems. So it could result in lower additions to landfills and that kind of thing, too. Lower addition to landfills, improving an aging wastewater treatment plant, helping clean up water and streams as, as we deal with manures more effectively, and the greenhouse gases that result from food waste are all things that uh, are important to us. We're speaking with Dr. John Holliday. He's co-director of the Joint Bioproducts Institute and a scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, part of the Energy Department. And just tell us briefly what each side brings to this whole effort, the National Laboratory and the academic institution. Yeah, so thank you for the question. Uh, The academic institution, Washington State University, uh, has been a really important partner with Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in working together in bringing in new ideas to the table and thinking innovatively about how do we deal with these waste materials that we can then convert into diesel fuel that we're talking about today and also jet fuel. Uh, So sustainable aviation fuel is a huge part of what we are working on together between PNNL and uh, Washington State University. And what's the delta, say, in process between the output being diesel fuel and the output being kerosene for jets? Because they're both needed in great quantity and will be for a long time. But if you had a cup of each one, you would see they're very, very different. They are different. And that's actually part of our our research is being able to make either aviation fuel or to make diesel fuel and to have both of them in really high quality. In the process we're talking about today, about 15% of that diesel fuel could be sold in the aviation market. But the diesel fuel is such a high-quality diesel fuel that uh, that's the first market that we think about for this material. And high-quality means less sulfur, correct? It means less sulfur. It also means high cetane. So as you think about gasoline, we think about octane. But diesel fuel needs cetane. And uh, that's one of the the critical fuel properties for a diesel engine to work right. And this fuel exceeds the cetane that one can get from petroleum. And so it becomes a a really high-quality fuel that can be used in an engine. Yeah, so truck drivers will like it because anything that gives more cetane, octane, no-knock, whatever you want to call it, put a tagger in your tank, I guess. And so do you have the sense that this process that you're working on that is now proven to run for a long time can scale to commercial proportions? Yeah, So this is the reason we have to do these type of runs uh, is to help people reduce the risk that the money required for scale-up can be found, right? So there is a huge amount of risk. It costs money as you scale up. And so this is exactly the kind of work that allows us to reduce that risk. And yes, we know it can scale up because the process is built off the same kind of principles that have been used for petroleum crude oil refining. So basically then, not to oversimplify, but it would simply be a difference of converting what crude material goes into the refinery. Otherwise, the refinery could operate as the industry is used to operating it, in theory? Yeah, yeah. In theory, that's the case. It gets complex because the amount of oxygen or nitrogen or other things that are in the material you have to may not be compatible with a refinery. We may have to build a small unit within a refinery or blend it with petroleum. And both of those are are possibilities. And depending upon different refiners, they would prefer one way or the other. 
because you have the federal government and you have academia here as parties in developing this. Any interest yet from industry? Are they sort of asking, hey, uh, Holiday, what's going on there? So the short answer is is yes. There's quite a bit of work that, that we're doing, and, and including uh, industrial partners reaching out, asking for samples. Right. So you have tested this material in vehicles then, correct? We have tested these materials in engines. Yes, absolutely. Testing them in vehicles is another step, and just making more of the material for long-term testing vehicles is certainly one of those steps that uh, comes next. And you have a fuel program, basically, that you operate for the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Anything else going on exciting we should know about briefly? Sure. You know, I talked about sustainable aviation fuel. We have other programs that uh, are making sustainable aviation fuel. The first full-scale plant being built now by a company called LonzaJet. This takes waste gases from industrial settings and converts that all the way to a really high-quality aviation fuel. And then we have projects that are focused on making chemicals from the same kind of waste resources, whether they be both biomass or other waste resources, to make things that are currently made uh, in the petrochemical industry. Exciting stuff. Dr. John Holliday is co-director of the Joint Bioproducts Institute, and he's a scientist at the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Thanks so much for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for allowing me to be here. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Fill your tank with the Federal Drive. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. We now bring you a special presentation from our friends at WEPA. Shane, thanks for joining us. Can you tell us about WEPA and your new podcast? Mike, great to see you again. The podcast series, Lessons in Leadership, what we're trying to do is, is take a deeper dive, a different angle into the conversation around leadership with great leaders at all levels of government. Uh, Since the 1900s, leadership has been studied in a serious and academic way. Uh, Great man theory, the leader-follower theory, the inspirational leader, transformational leader, all of these are backward-looking development of styles, looking at an individual, figuring out how they did leadership, and then translating it into a form that we can use today to learn, to perhaps emulate, copy. But great leaders, they have more than one style. I think, I truly think that a great leader can adapt and transform into the role that's needed at that time. So what we're trying to do is, is talk to great leaders and go a level deeper. Tell us about your a story in your past. Tell us an inspiration that really affected your ability to lead others. And this certainly applies in the uh, federal space. The federal government, it's over 2 million employees. Great leaders are throughout the federal government, both at the top and the middle ranks. And what we want to do is ask them to pull inside their memory, pull inside their personal history, Find those moments in time when they were changed, they were inspired, they learned something about leadership from another person, perhaps it was uh, from themselves, and they brought that to the workplace, and they inspired other and became great leaders. So that's what we're trying to do with the podcast. Okay, so I, I get that you wanted to start with leadership, but what makes leadership such an important topic right now for federal workers? Great question. Leadership today is tested like never before. 
Um, today's, if I had to put a leadership style, if I had to put names to it, we hear about um, empathetic, we hear transparent, we hear uh, inspirational. So today we have COVID, we have a down economy, we have people, we have social uh, injustice that we're dealing with. There are many new factors. And it's drawing like never before on a leader's ability to pull from within themselves and adapt to the current change. So leadership today is almost brand new again. We're taking all kinds of different styles, attributes, learnings that leaders have. They're looking at the current situation that we're in and understanding how do I move groups of people? How do I move my employees? How do I inspire? How do I get them to the next best place? So I think leadership today, this conversation uh, is extremely relevant, perhaps more relevant than it's been in several decades. You know, we talk about an employee's personal route to growth, but what role does the management side have in this? I think in the federal government, it's, it's a little bit different than it is in the private sector. Uh, my father was a civilian federal employee. Uh, he joined the federal government in the 1960s. Uh, John Kennedy, he was inspired by ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. He had opportunities to go in the private sector. That notion of service inspired him. It inspired an entire generation. I would like to think that call to service which is unique in, in the federal space, in the government space, still exists today. Well, that about says it all. But is anything else you'd want the audience to know about you personally or WEPA as an, as an organization? Uh, I have been uh, around the group affinity insurance world for um, three decades. Uh, led This is my second uh, major organization that I've led. And I will tell you that we impart this feeling, uh, you mentioned it, Mike, about service, this notion. We serve those who serve. And uh, I will tell you that it's refreshing. It's a blessing to be there. And <clears throat> I have so much respect for civilian federal employees at every level of government. In this podcast, we're hoping to talk to leaders which are similarly inspired and can share their learnings over a lifetime and uh, this will be useful information uh, for anybody in government service. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.